This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Yes, this is Rabbi Michael Katz coming to you today, believe it or not, live from the Chai FM studio, 101.9 Judaism, Judaism 101.9 at Chai FM, and this is actually a live show. Now, I guess when they play this as a podcast, people are going to say, but it's not live anymore. Right now, it is live. Yes, on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon, the 19th of December, I am live in the studio. It seemed to probably make a, a nice change and a nice break from all the recorded stuff. This is a live broadcast. And it's wonderful to be in your company, and perhaps I thought today we would explore a little bit some of the things that we need to glean over this coming week from the Parsha of the Week, being that many of the Parsha Tashavua um, uh, broadcasts are not going to go out this week. So perhaps we'll do something along those lines, and perhaps we'll also just explore the idea of holidays in general. Of course, everybody or a lot of people are on holiday, and that's why um, it seems unusual to have a live show here today, and it seems unusual to be in a building where um, it seems that the lights are on just for High FM. It's uh, quite amazing and uh, quite incredible to be in this kind of an atmosphere. And yes, town is a bit quieter. Um, nothing seems to be moving um, that quickly outside. It is a beautiful time of the year and very, very beautiful to be here in the Highfield, to be here in Joburg. If you can put up with the electric storms like we had the other night um, and you can uh, weather those storms and all the other things that uh, we have to put up with like uh, over 30 degree heat, etc. on a daily basis. Well, it is wonderful to be here, wonderful to be alive, wonderful to be Jewish and wonderful to be Jewish at a time like this. Now, let's explore if we may just begin <coughs> with something that has to do with the Parsha. A unique parsha, Parshat Vayechi, that we're going to read on this coming Shabbat and that we live with this week. And it all brings to fruition and brings to completion the book of Breshit. The book of Genesis comes to an end on this coming Shabbat. It's going to be a day on which we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek, that we need to be strong and we need to strengthen one another as we come to the end of the first book of the five books of the Torah that we have read in great um, anticipation and in sequence from Shabbat Breshit, from the Shabbos right after Simchat Torah, uh, where we began Breshit, Bara Elohim, we now come to the end of the book of Genesis. It's going to be completed on Shabbos, and in that end, there is a very, very important set of rules, principles, missions, and incredible things that need a lot of introspection and interpretation, not the least of which is the fact that it is in this parsha that Yaakov Avinu Jacob passes on, and as he is doing that, or as he's about to do that, there is a very, very powerful and poignant time that he spends with all his sons around his bedside, and he's giving them blessings. And these aren't just blessings where he says to them, I want you to be good boys and I want you to be together and I want um, you to always be happy and please look after each other. There's all of that insinuated as well. But there is a special mission statement that is actually issued from Jacob, from Yaakov, from a spiritual point of view, looking into the souls of his sons and looking into their roles that they're going to play in the future. These are all deep, profound, and very, very <coughs> beautiful prophecies based on history, based on what has happened, based on their own natures. But it is something that empowers them 
and carries them forward into the future. One of the most difficult things perhaps to get our heads around is the fact that in the uh, blessings that he says, there are some really, really difficult knocks that um, Yaakov Avinu um, issues, uh, that he makes um, certain very, very cutting statements in a way to some of his sons. And I'd like to place under the magnifying glass, if I may, for the next short while, the various blessings that are given, but we're not going to go through each and every one of them, but just to touch on the blessing that is given to the oldest son, to Reuven, and the blessing that is given to Yehuda, and to kind of juxtapose them, to look at them in context of each other. And the way we're going to do that, if I may, is uh, to take a look at Reuven, the oldest son, and think about what it is actually that his father says to him. I'm not going to quote chapter and verse, but we're going to just paraphrase a little bit. He tells his son, you are my firstborn. You were the very, very first of all my children. And because of that, you should have, you should have had all sorts of privileges, a birthright, the right to the priesthood, the right to the kingship, to the rulership of the Jewish people in the future. But because you, you, you messed up, because you made a mistake, because there was something that you did wrong, you unfortunately are not going to have that anymore. You're going to be great, and you are a good guy, and everything is going to be wonderful for you and your future. But the power, unfortunately, is going to be shifted. And the one who is going to inherit that power, the one who is going to be the father of all the kings, is Yehuda. Yehuda, like the strong lion, is going to be blessed, and he blesses him, that Yehuda, you should be the one, and you will be the one from whom all the kings and the future of the Jewish people will come. From David HaMelech, from King David, all the way through to through the, in the house of David, all the way to Melech HaMoshiach, to the Mashiach, the anointed king that is going to come at the end of the Golis at the end of these uh, times of diaspora and take us out of here and lead the Jewish people once again. The word Mashiach means an anointed king and the Mashiach is going to come from the house of David as well, inherited from coming from Yehuda. What was it and what is it that caused this kind of difficult juxtaposition, this kind of difficult swap actually in roles? What was it that made Reuven go down and Yehuda rise? If we think about these two people and we think about their roles in a couple of situations, I think that we can perhaps come up with an answer. Not always that easy to stomach, not always that easy to ingest and digest and to live with, but an answer nevertheless. The first place that we're going to put these brothers under the spotlight is the moment of the sale of Joseph. Now, we read about that a couple of weeks ago. Joseph, Yosef, was sold into slavery, and um, off he went to Egypt. He became the savior, not only of the Jewish people, but the savior, in fact, of the whole world, because there was this, you know, the known world at the time, there was this terrible famine, and he was the only one who had the wherewithal, the brain power, the ability to uh, manage the economy for um, the king, for Pharaoh, and a a, a, a brilliant job he did at that, at first interpreting the dreams and then, of course, um, uh, becoming 
the viceroy of Egypt um, seeing to the um, uh, the sustenance not only of Egypt but all the surrounding countries and eventually managing to literally take over the whole world, the whole known world for Pharaoh, making him the most powerful uh, ruler um, at that time. And it was the sale of Joseph into slavery that uh, we're going to put under the spotlight in looking at the roles that were played by Reuven and Yehuda. If we think about it, Yosef, Joseph, comes to approach his brothers. He is sent there by his father. He's coming to check on uh, their wherewithal, their well-being, perhaps to bring them some care packages from home. And here he arrives, and the brothers plot, of course, to kill him. Ruvain, the tzaddik, the righteous man, incredible guy, older brother, feels the responsibility. And what does he do? He steps forward, and he protects his younger brother from the wrath of the other brothers. And he says... You know what we need to do? We actually need to um, save his life. We cannot have his blood on our hands. How can I go back to my father with his blood on my hands? This is not something that I can do. And so what Ruvain does at that point is um, quite incredible. He saves his brother's life. And the brothers now accede to his request. Yes, they strip him naked. Yes, they uh, toss him into a pit. And we're told that the pit was empty of water, but it was full of snakes and scorpions. But nonetheless, he saved his brother from the wrath of the others. He saved his brother from a certain death. And into the pit, Joseph is tossed. And a short while later, Joseph is sold into slavery. There is a crossing of paths between Midianites and Ishmaelites, and there seems to be some kind of a barter deal that is done, and Joseph is sold into slavery. Now, who was it who sold him into slavery? Who came up with the idea to not spill his blood, but actually sell him into slavery? None other than Yehuda. Yehuda says the plan is we're going to sell him into slavery this way we won't spill his blood but at the same time we'll be rid of him and this is the action of Yehuda in that small or great incident we have the role of Reuven and the role of Yehuda and we take a, take a hard look at the role of Reuven of Reuben Reuven is the one who saves Joseph's life Yehuda is the one who sells him into slavery which is the better which was the one that was better in the eyes of the spiritual worlds, which is the one that's better in the eyes of Torah. We will be back with you with the answer just after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Okay, so we're getting back to our uh, discussion about uh, the comparison between, or the comparative behavior between Ruvain and Yehuda. And let's Put it back under the spotlight. We're thinking about the time when Joseph was sold into slavery. Ruvain steps forward, saves his life. Yehuda sells Joseph into slavery or comes up with the idea and the brothers acquiesce and the sale is put through. And they then contrive the whole plan to uh, actually tell their father that um, Joseph had died. Well, if we think about something peculiar in the story that doesn't quite make sense, if you look at it at first glance, and that is that the, the brothers sell um, Joseph into slavery. And then all of a sudden, the Torah records that Ruvain went over to the pit and looked and saw that Joseph was gone. So the question is, where was Ruvain? At the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, where was Ruvain? 
he doesn't seem to have been around because he comes back and he seems to be shocked. He seems to be surprised. And he says, now a terrible thing has happened. My brother is gone. Um, and what are we going to tell our father? And then they contrive the plan to slaughter a, a goat and to sp- put the blood on the uh, on the coat of many colors and bring it back to their father. And we know all that um, story um, as it is told in the Torah. Now, if we think about this incredible moment, Ruvain returns to the pit. Joseph is gone. So the question is, where was Ruvain? Well, our Mephoshim, our commentators, including Rashi, tell us that he was in one of two places both of which would have taken him away from the scene. Place number one is um, that he had gone off into the um, faraway distant fields, perhaps, to pray. And why would he have prayed at that time? It says because he was still doing tshuva. He was still apologizing for the fact that he had done something that was tantamount to total interference in his father's marriage. He had done something called the moving of the beds. He had changed his father's pattern of how his father was going to be with his different wives. He had done that. And at the moment that he did that, his father had admonished him that you do not interfere in your parents' marriage. You do not interfere in your father's relationships. You don't do that. A child has no right, no matter how old you are or how you think, you can see it clearer. And you're taking, as he always did, Ruven took his mother's side, wanted to protect his mother and make sure that she was um, equally treated and fairly treated. But interference in parents' marriage and their relationships is absolutely taboo for a child. And therefore, Ruven, for the rest of his days, spent time fasting. So while the other brothers sat down to eat lunch, so to speak, at that time, um, and Joseph was in the pit, Ruvain had gone off to do tshuva. He was praying. He was repenting. He was asking for forgiveness from the Almighty to try and come to terms with the terrible thing that he had done that interfered in his father's marriage. Ruvain then returns to the pit, according to this opinion, and finds that Joseph is gone. So it all happened when he was away. Alternatively, the suggestion is that he had gone back. It was his turn to go home and spend time helping their father at home, that each brother would take it in turns, that a roster of who had to go back. It was his chance, his turn. He had left. He had gone back. Now, if we think about it, it seems to be that all of these things paint Ruvain into such a good light. He was not only concerned for his mother, but he was concerned for his father. And if he wasn't only concerned for his mother and his father, he was a man who was repenting for the uh, one blip on the radar screen, so to speak, of his behavior, that he had done something that had deeply offended his father, that he had done this. And he was apologizing for it, who continues to do tshuva, who continues to repent all the days of his life in such a sincere um, way. It was absolutely incredible. And it shows something profoundly, profoundly deep and very, very special about this man called Ruvain. Where was Yehuda? Yehuda was sitting down with the brothers. They had their lunch. The uh, travelers, the passers-by came. Yehuda hatches the plot to uh, get rid of the brother in a nice way, send him into exile, send him away. And in that way, we'd be rid of the problem. He wouldn't interfere with us anymore. He wouldn't have his delusions of grandeur anymore. And we'd be able to then move on without him. Um, And um, when we think about it, what was the difference here in the behaviors between these two individuals? Well, it's pretty clear. Ruvain, while he was a nice guy, while he had a tremendous, tremendous kindness that um, pervaded his entire being 
and he had such a a um, uh, so many actions of chesed of kindness that he was doing for his brother, and he wanted to protect him, and he didn't want him to be killed, and he wanted to make sure that the brothers didn't climb into him, and he did all of those things. Nevertheless, what kind of a salvation was it actually that he put him into a pit, into a pit where there were snakes and scorpions, that he put him in there naked, that he left him there, and then went away to do his tshuva, then went away perhaps to serve his father. It seems to be a very, very um, silly plan. In fact, no plan at all. He'd saved his life, but he had failed to protect him thereafter. He'd saved his life, but he had left him literally in a pit right next to the guys who wanted to kill him. It seems to be a very, very fickle kind of a plan that he had. Yehuda, we might not like Yehuda's plan. We might not think that Yehuda's plan was something that we would have gone with. But he's got a plan. And it's a plan that he can put into motion. And it's a plan whereby he constructively actually makes sure that the life of Joseph is saved. And there are some who suggest that Yehuda had some kind of a divine um, foresight, a prophecy, ability at that moment. And he foresaw that selling him into slavery would put him into Egypt, put him into the right place at the right time. And that years later, he would be the savior of his family and of the Jewish people. There are all those possibilities. But at that moment, Ruvain had no plan. Yehuda had a plan. And one of the things that the Torah tells us that a Jew has to have is a plan. And one of the things that the Torah tells us certainly is that a king has to have a plan. A king has to know where he is going. He has to know that there is a, 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 a full game plan. Yeah, he's got to have the whole picture. He's got to be able to make decisions that sometimes are not that popular and are not that readily acceptable and accepted by everybody, but a plan nevertheless, something that can inspire his people and um, invite his people to move forward and to move in a direction. He's got to have that strength of character to be able to lead. And that's what leadership is actually all about. So Ruvain comes out of this whole thing as being a very, very nice guy, but he's not a leader. Very, very nice man, but not qualities that would be for kingship. And kingship in Judaism is not only a king who is inspiring in terms of Torah and uh, mitzvahs and all those other wonderful things, but a king who can actually lead, who can set an example that others will follow, can be the moral guide, not only the uh, physical guide, and it's not only the king of, uh, of wars and the king of uh, leadership when it comes to the battlefield, but a king in a spiritual battlefield, a king who can actually lead on a moral uh, standing and this is what the kingship of David and the kingship of Yehuda is actually blessed with in this week's Parsha. So Ruvain gets a hard knock. He gets a harsh rap. He gets wrapped over the knuckles for the fact that <coughs> he's told, you interfered in your father's marriage, but you also are not a man who has a plan. You are not someone who uh, people are going to be able to follow because you don't have a plan of your own. You're very, very nice, and it's wonderful that you are so spiritually well-endowed and doing everything spiritually that you need to do and so connected and so um, uh, wanting to forgive yourself and so introspective and so responsible but in fact, your irresponsibility is that you haven't thought through the end game. You haven't thought through what is going to be uh, tomorrow and what is going to happen next. And that you're prepared to leave your brother once you've saved his life, but you leave him at the peril, um, in, in, a, in a situation of peril and at the absolute mercy of those who want to destroy him or those who want to kill him. Ruvain, no plan. Yehuda has a plan. 
So I'd like to suggest that um, since Parashat Vayechi usually comes at the time of um, school holidays and holidays in general um, here in Joburg, here in South Africa, that perhaps we need to take a little bit of inspiration out of this and think about the fact that we often look at a time of holidays as being a time where we take and we can take time off from everything. Now, time off from everything is not always a bad idea. But if we think about it in terms of Judaism, there is a vast difference between taking time off from everything and taking time off from the things that are actually not that enticing, that not inviting, and that not not that good for our neshamas, for our souls. Taking time off work, wonderful idea. Taking time off from God, bad idea. Taking time off from our physical lives, great idea. Taking time off from our spiritual lives, bad idea. And we need to make sure that we have some kind of a notion, some kind of a plan when it comes to the school holidays as to what it actually is that we are going to do with all this in inverted commas, free time. I remember listening um, several times to uh, the great Lubavitcher Rebbe talking about the concept of vacation. You know, fortunately here in South Africa, we don't refer to holidays as vacation so much, although uh, it is a word that probably creeps in um, to our vocabulary from time to time. And uh, pointing out that the word vacation in English means to vacate. Vacate is an empty word. Vacation means we're going out in an empty way. A preferred word would be, as we do refer to here in South Africa, holidays. Holiday comes from the word holy day. We're making these days special. They're holy. And how do we make these days special? Well, number one is making them holy in the way whereby we make Um, our spiritual days holy from a Jewish point of view. And what is that? That we take a break from the workplace and that at the same time we invest our time, effort, energy, hearts and minds to much more productive spiritual pursuits. For instance, spending time with the family. For instance, trying to grow in our Jewish learning. For instance, trying to grow in our spiritual observance. Not the other way around. Because that is, in fact, what time off, what holidays actually are from a Jewish point of view. So we need to reinterpret here. The concept of a holiday is not, from a Torah point of view, a time to really get away from it all and drop your standards and move away from your kosher kitchen and move away from your Shabbat observance and move away from your talis and tefillin on a daily basis and move away from your uh, shiurim and your Torah learning, move away from your tzniut, from the way that we dress um, um, from a Jewish point of view in order to make sure that we always are adhering to the ad- to the ideas of being modest in front of the Almighty. We need to remember that at a time of holidays, we need to make more of an accent and more of an emphasis probably on the things of holiness to make sure that, yes, we do spend meaningful time with our families, of course, that we do have time to relax, to recharge our batteries and to be able to rejuvenate ourselves. But at the same time, we need to rejuvenate our spiritual uh, well-being as well. We've had possibly a difficult year. We've been um, uh, 
shoved from pillar to post. We've been battered. We've uh, gone through all sorts of issues, problems uh, from a, a, in a in a macro way and in a micro way, personally as well as um, collectively as well as uh, the whole Jewish people, Israel, etc. And all of these things do take a toll on us. Of course they do. And we need some time out and we need some time to sit and think. But at the same time, we need to reinvigorate ourselves. We need to come back. When we do return to the workplace, we do return to work, school, whatever it, el- whatever it else it is that you are involved in and that you are doing, that you have made this time not vacation but rather holiday, that we've changed it from being a time of just uh, being vacuous and being empty and being devoid of any um, spiritual structure into something that has that spiritual structure, that we've allowed our souls to shine, that we've allowed our spirituality to be brought to the fore, that we've made sure that wherever we go on holiday, that we're ensuring that we are keeping kosher, that wherever we go on holiday, we're ensuring that we keep Shabbat, wherever we go on holiday, that we're ensuring that we pray, that we spend time at prayer. It's an opportunity where we have more time. Our excuse when we're at work for uh, not davening properly, and we're all guilty of that, I guess, is uh, that we've got to be at a meeting. We've got to be at work. Well, here we have time. There's no agenda. And the open agenda should allow us, should enable us to spend some holy time together rather than spending time purely in vacation, vacating, vacuous, and emptiness. Let's make sure that these holidays are spent in spiritual productivity, that we are doing things and it doesn't have to be a heavy and a difficult program, but rather to focus on the fact that we do have some free time. It is a golden, a great opportunity to catch up a little bit on your learning, to catch up a little bit on your prayer, to catch up a lot on the uh, relationships that you have around you, to spend some more time with your family, with your children, to spend some more time thinking about the things that are important in life and making sure that we have taken care of all of those things um, as much as we have spent 12 months of the year taking care of all the physical stuff. Be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and welcome back. We're talking about making the holidays holy days, making them special, thinking about with a plan, as we mentioned in the first segment, where we're thinking about how we're going to have a proper plan of what we're going to do over these holidays. We've all made plans, I guess, of where we're going to be and uh, how we're going to spend the time and uh, – uh, how we're going to travel if we're traveling and uh, the days that we're going to spend perhaps lounging about at the pool, watching sport, etc., etc., etc. But how about making a spiritual plan, adding to all of it something in the direction of where our souls really need to be and what really needs to come through from a spiritual point of view, making sure that we have a plan of Torah learning, making sure that we have a plan of our prayers, of our davening, making sure that wherever we are, we adhere to all the rules and regulations that uh, perhaps we have found a little bit taxing, difficult to keep up with, difficult to do during our time um, in, um, in, 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 during the year, in our work time, in our work periods. Let's make sure that we have this great and wonderful spiritual plan. But let's also think about the fact that coming up in the next couple of weeks, there are some very important uh, non-Jewish holidays. There are dates that are um, celebrated around the world. 
including 25th, 26th of December, and then, of course, the 1st of January. And um, how are these viewed and how are these supposed to be viewed from a Jewish point of view? Well, from a Jewish point of view, we certainly need to make sure that we are not caught up and not thinking about our um, absolute involvement in um, that at all. In fact, we need to make sure that we are not involved because this is not from a Jewish point of view, this is not something that we should be adding energy to, giving any energy to um, something that has over uh, so many uh, millennia not only been a cause of great anguish and difficulty and pain for the Jewish people, but that in fact it is the antithesis of what we actually believe in and what we think about. First of all, the fact that it's actually linked with Secular dates is already a problem. The fact that the secular dates are meant to be the birth and the bris of an individual in whom um, uh, the many parts of uh, the world have felt was actually the Messiah. Um, this is certainly not accepted from a Jewish point of view, and therefore we have to be careful that we're not giving any credence, any credibility, any power, any spiritual power to these dates whatsoever. Certainly not a cause for celebration. In fact, <coughs> our sages have told us that it is actually on the evening of uh, the the uh, the night before the 25th of December, so 24th in the evening, um, that in fact we do not learn Torah um, on that night. It is called Nittelnacht. It is the day on which Torah is not learned. In many yeshivas, you'll see pictures of the yeshiva bachrim sitting probably doing something else like playing chess, keeping their minds active, not getting involved in any other nonsense, but um, certainly not learning Torah per se for the simple reason that anything that is done um, on that day, um, this a the element of sadness, and in a way similar to Tisha B'av, where we also do not learn Torah, but on the other hand, not adding adding any energy to these uh, negative times from a Jewish point of view as well. And the same thing goes for the first of January. Our calendar begins, as you well know, on the first of Nisan, if you're going according to um, the months, and certainly on the first of Tishra and Rosh Hashanah, if you're going according to the years, um, as we have discussed before. Those are our are our high points, and let's not be caught wanting and lowering ourselves um, from a Jewish spiritual point of view to being involved in celebrating, in uh, commemorating in any um, outward way and getting involved in things that we shouldn't be involved in, first of all, and secondly, um, adding power, adding spiritual strength um, to these dates. It is uh, not the right thing from a Jewish point of view. This is uh, Judaism 101.9, and uh, therefore uh, needed to fill you in on that as well. Be back with you to sum up right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and uh, welcome back. Yes, we've been talking about the Parsha of the week and then talking about the holidays and how we're supposed to view them um, in the next couple of weeks in particular and holidays in general. And thinking about the fact that we need to turn these holidays into holy days instead of making them days of vacation. And thinking about the fact that we need to have a plan, as we spoke about in the first segment, the idea of having a plan of what we're going to do from a Jewish point of view, what we're going to do from a spiritual point of view, and how we're not going to allow our guard, G-U-A-R-D, and God, 
g slash d-o-g-o-d to actually fall down um, um, and uh, become a little bit less than uh, front of agenda uh, during this uh, period of time. We need to make sure that we are well focused. We need to make sure that we know what that plan actually is. And we need to make sure that we can spend this time productively making good use of it and ensuring that we come back not only refreshed, reinvigorated, rejuvenated, um, and uh, ready to face the, uh, the, the time up ahead. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis, as we do um, with the end of each book in the shul, we call out chazak, chazak, v'nit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us strengthen one another. Chazak meaning strong. We need to have strength, and we need to make sure that we do these things, not in a difficult way of strength, but in a positive way of strength. We need to be strong. We need to be strong in our convictions. We need to be strong in our commitment. We need to be strong in our connections. We need to be strong in our uh, reticence and in our um, in our resilience. We need to be strong in all of these things because it is only through the strength that we have um, individually and that we have collectively that we can actually stand up to everything that the world is tossing at us on a regular basis. And with that strength, if I am strong, I help you to be strong, and together we can certainly strengthen one another, strengthen the entire Jewish world, and strengthen our whole people, and in fact, strengthen the world per se. This is our job. This is our focus. This is what we need to do. Hopefully, we can focus well, and hopefully, we will have a great holiday, a holy day, a time of special, special good things that we can um, celebrate together um, in the very, very immediate and then not too distant and then future per se. So um, I'm going to wish you well for these holidays. Next week, um, Judaism 101.9 will not be on the air because of the public holiday. Uh, Public holiday 26th is um, next week, Wednesday. And uh, the following week, please, God, I'll be back with you um, already on 2nd of January into 2019, believe it or not. So I want to wish you well. Take care. Look forward to being back with you soon. Have a great Shabbat up ahead. Enjoy the rest of this week and the week thereafter. And um, see you in a couple of weeks' time on Judaism 101.9.